Welcome back to Democracy Speaks. I'm your host, Cindy Black, and I'm speaking with Kirsten Mueller about election security. Before the break, we were talking about voting through uh, email. Now let's get into talk about one of the bills that you were instrumental um, getting through the legislature this past session, and that is House Bill 2406. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular bill and what it does and why you push for this particular piece of legislation? Sure. So to give a little bit of background, uh, when I first got involved with the league a little over a year ago, uh, we had decided that we were going to try to write some legislation for better post-election audits. And before we were going to write it, we uh, were starting to contact legislators to see if anybody was interested in this topic. Well, it turned out right at that time, we found out there was a legislator already working uh, on exactly what we wanted to see. Uh, that was uh, Representative Zach Hudgens, uh, who is in uh, South King County. And he is the chair of the House um, State Government State Committee. Government. There yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so he was already collaborating with county auditors uh, to come up with a way to improve Washington's post-election audits. And so once uh, we found out that something was already in the works, uh, we were in there trying to provide feedback, trying to um, improve the bill. And I started to reach out to my uh, state senator and get him kind of informed uh, more on post-election audits to kind of break down the barrier between the House and the Senate. And so he and I chatted uh, for about an hour on the topic and I kind of explained to him what the benefits were to improving our state's audits and he was on board. And he actually ended up uh, introducing a companion bill in the Senate. So House Bill 2406 um, is a really great piece of legislation. It gives the auditors a choice of four different types of post-election audits that they can perform. And this is mandatory auditing, that it requires county election officials to do auditing, because before that, it was an optional, correct? Yeah, so before this became law, uh, the only type of mandatory auditing was audits of what are called DREs, and that stands for Direct Recording Electronic. And so that's a form of uh, where somebody would have to go and vote in person on a machine. Uh, and very few counties in the state still have those machines. Most counties had moved away from them. But that was the only thing that was required. That, that was required, exactly. Okay. So the other type of audit uh, was optional, and that's the one we talked about earlier, where basically tabulation is stopped and a chunk of ballots are compared to the machine count. And so it's my understanding most auditors were saying they were performing the optional audit, um, but there was no mandate to it. And so now with House Bill 24... And we found out that some counties were doing that and some weren't at all. Right, right, yeah. And so it's really, I mean, there's 39 counties and it's hard to be everywhere at once and, um, and getting this information and finding out you know, the outcomes of the audits. Um, and so it, it's really important now that we have this tool that auditors 
can perform one of four audits, and one of those is really the gold standard of uh, post-election audits. It's called a risk-limiting audit. And to give a little bit more detail about this, I'm sure I'm probably going to uh, fumble this a little bit, but <laughs> here's my best attempt. A risk-limiting audit limits the risk of certifying an incorrect election. That's why they call it risk-limiting exactly. audit. Okay. Exactly, yes. I always wondered why they call it that particular term. Yeah, it's not the most uh, easy-to-understand term. Um, it needs a rebranding. Yeah, yeah it, it does. It needs a marketing plan yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so i got to work on that. Um, but for the most part, uh, so Colorado and Rhode Island currently perform risk-limiting audits. And the general uh, thought is that about a 5% risk limit uh, is, is good practice. And so that would mean that 19 times out of 20, if there was a problem with the tabulation of the ballots, 19 times out of 20, that would be caught if it meant a change in the election outcome. So it gives very high statistical certainty to our election outcomes. So when you say 5%, you mean you check 5% of the ballots? No, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, so so let's dive a little deeper into this here. Um, so what makes risk-limiting audits so great is it's a random sample of the ballots. And so generally, a random sample is chosen with some type of, you know, like dice or, you know, lottery ball machine or something to create a random string of numbers. That's then used to choose which um, ballots are chosen. And We're a batch by batches, because by individual. Well, the most effective is to do it by individual. By ballots. individual ballot mm -hmm. rather than batches. But for certain voting systems, it would need to be done by batch, and that's kind of getting into the nitty gritty. Um, but so the number of ballots to draw depends on the margin of victory. And so if you take a race, let's say, where somebody won 60 to 40, very few ballots need to be looked at in order to confirm. Because there was such a big margin of victory. Because there was such a big yeah. margin, yeah. And so I'm just throwing this out approximately, I think it's about 40 ballots that would need to be randomly drawn and looked at. And if those hand-to-eye um, examination of ballots to the computer interpretation shows that there was no problem, then the audit's done, and we can have, you know. And that's a pretty small sampling. It so is. that's, it seems like an efficient way to verify an election results mm -hmm. with a small sample like that. Exactly. So it's efficient, it's cost effective, and it gives us a lot of information to have confidence in the outcome. Uh, when we start to get into tighter races, let's say uh, 51 to 49, uh, then it's somewhere around 300 ballots would need to be randomly drawn and looked at and compared to the com computer interpretation. And again, if nothing's wrong, then the audit stops and we have that information. We can have 95% confidence um, uh, in that election outcome. And so if there is an issue where we start to see, ooh, things aren't matching up, well, then the audit escalates and more ballots are randomly drawn until we can have that high confidence that the outcome is correct. But if ballots are being drawn and things aren't adding up right, well then the audit can escalate to a full recount. And the full recount might overturn the original election results if something went wrong, whether it's a software error or you know malicious tampering or what have you. But basically this audit is a great check 
um, in order to, you know, giving us that evidence, that assurance mm -hmm. um, that we've checked those ballots and made sure some computer mishap didn't happen. So here in the state of Washington now, we have this risk-limiting auditing. Is When does that take effect? Does that take effect immediately? Do we have to wait a time for this to happen? How, when does it start? So the way the law was written uh, is that the Secretary of State has to have the rules written by January 1st of 2019. So it won't be for the midterms. It will right. be starting next year elections. Exactly. Yeah. So to my knowledge, uh, the county auditors and election officials do have to perform one of the audits outlined in House Bill 2406, but the risk-limiting audits aren't really in place yet um, for them to perform, so they'll probably perform one of the other methods. Um, so the Secretary of State is still writing the rules. They're supposed to be open for public feedback pretty soon, I'm hearing. Um, so I think that'll be a really... Um, great way to get folks who are interested in this involved in reading through these rules, providing feedback. Um, it would be really great if Washington could really set the bar mm -hmm. for how these are conducted. Uh, even though Colorado and Rhode Island are already doing them, um, there's still improvements to be made. Uh, and so there's work to be done. And I think once counties start to pilot these in early 2019, uh, to be present and watching and becoming familiar with how this works will really show some great um, citizen engagement and having, mm -hmm. you know, confidence in our elections. Um, so, yeah, so that's something to definitely look out for and kind of keep our eyes on for when those rules get released. You mentioned four different ways to audit an election um, with this particular bill. Can you just really briefly outline those four ways um, for folks? I think you've s described some, but um, lay that all out so people understand what that means. How? What are the ways they can do that? Yeah, sure. So one of the ways is uh, what we just talked about, the risk limiting audit. One is uh, what's already pretty much taking place where they stop tabulation and compare hand to eye to the computer tabulation. Um, and generally that's about 1,000 or 1,200 ballots is my understanding. Uh, another way is an audit of uh, the in-person machines um, that voters can vote on. And it's my understanding these devices are being used very rarely. Because so, hardly anybody goes in to actually vote in person anymore, right? Right. And a lot of the counties have switched to what are called ballot marking devices, meaning when they go in and vote on this machine, a ballot gets printed out and it looks just like any other ballot and nothing is stored on the machine. So they can't audit that. That ballot goes right into it with the rest of the ballots. And so it's very few counties who have these machines left to audit. So mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be utilized sure. very often as an option. Uh, the last audit option is what's called an independent electronic audit. And my understanding is this is where the ballots could be run through uh, a completely separate type of scanner and then seeing if the two tabulations match. I think the problem with this type of audit is it's probably going to be more expensive. You have to buy a whole nother system. And it is described as needing to be completely independent. And well, how do we com uh, define complete independence? Is that being totally separate vendors? Is that totally different, you know, base operating systems? And so 
I'm not sure how that's going to play out in the rules, um, and I'm not sure how many counties are going to utilize that option. I think there are some confidence issues um, because that would be completely relying on software twice. You know, we're relying on the software to tabulate our ballots in the first place, and then we'd be relying again on some other software to tabulate our ballots without any human hand-to-eye examination. And we're not getting that, you know, um, statistical um, number that we would get from a risk-limiting audit. And so uh, I have a bit of trouble with with that fourth option, um, and I'm not really sure how it's going to pan out. Do the counties have to uh, state up front which option they're going to use? How do how do how are they held accountable for following through on these audits? Yeah, so I think uh, that's going to remain to be seen. I mean, obviously, public observation is is key. Uh, finding out when the audits occur and being there and watching. Um, I would like to see there be like a public audit results website. You know, maybe hosted by the Secretary of State where somebody could just go and read through exactly what each audit found and have that posted for, you know, easy public access. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be for every county, the Secretary of State's office could could post the results of the audits, yeah. basically. Yeah, I would really like to see that. Yeah. It's my understanding that's not required right now, um, but I think that would be something great to push for in 2019. You are listening to Democracy Speaks. I'm your host, Cindy Black, and I'm speaking with Kirsten Mueller, and we're talking about election security. So we just have probably a few minutes left here. Let's talk about a couple things around what's next now. Um, So you've gotten the Secretary of State to do away pretty much with um, the email option for voting. We got the election security bill passed that requires risk limiting auditing or or some other type of auditing. So now what's next? What else do we need to do here, say in Washington state to get better? Yeah, so to talk a little bit more about email ballot return. uh, So the Secretary of State has removed the option for most in-state voters to return their ballot via an email attachment. But there's still the concern of those who are overseas and service voters. And so it's our understanding that she will be introducing legislation in 2019 to completely uh, remove the option for email ballot return. And I think there's probably going to be the need for education uh, for folks to understand that removing this option isn't going to be a huge barrier for voting. There has actually been some studies done that show uh, for those who are at military bases overseas, most ballots on average are returned within two to four days of being mailed. Uh, Overseas and service voters are required by federal law to receive their ballots 45 days prior to an election. So they even get it before everybody else does. Correct. And... As long as the ballot is signed or postmarked by Election Day, they have another 10 to 21 days for it to be received by the election officials because it just needs to be received before certification. Yeah, exactly, which takes two to three weeks anyways. Yes. So so in Washington, we have a really wide window for folks uh, who qualify as service or overseas to have their ballots count. Um, So removing the email option 
should not pr provide a huge barrier for folks. Um, and it provides a huge increase in security of our systems. And so I think that education for legislators and other um, folks in this arena is gonna be necessary mm -hmm. coming up into 2019. Um, so I think it's gonna be important going back to the risk limiting audits to understand what the barriers are for our election officials. So in barriers to doing the auditing. Exactly. Maybe? Yeah. So I've talked to a few election officials who are very gung ho. They're raising their hands and they're volunteering to be the first ones to do this, to help Washington state problem solve, you know, what's necessary to happen in our state since each election system is so different. But then other election officials have been very hesitant and that's understandable. This is, this would be a huge change in practice and would require a lot of time and education to implement. Um, but I think it's important to see, well, what are the barriers? What can we do to advocate for eliminating those barriers? And that way we can all um, kind of work from the same foundation um, that we wanna see this practice in place. And so I think that's gonna be important. Uh, so even though we have this legislation passed, uh, we really need to get counties engaged in it. Mm -hmm. The implementation um, has to happen. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of just through step one. We've got a lot of other steps to go. And it would be really great if we were able to get these statewide by the um, presidential election for 2020. So that's the ultimate goal is to have this all up and running. Everybody is ready to go. So after the 2020 election, they'll be able to do these audits pretty, pretty easily. That would be wonderful. Yeah. That would really put Washington in a space where we are leading the nation uh, and implementing these best practices um, to take ourselves from being run of the mill to really being out in the forefront mm -hmm. uh, up there with some of the other states that are leading the way. Well, it's interesting about Washington State is we're leading the way on quite a few democracy-related issues, and I definitely see election security as a democracy issue. If our election isn't secure, mm -hmm that really jeopardize having democracy. And uh, one of the things you've done a lot over the last year, year and a half or so since the 2016 election, in addition to educating yourself, is you've done a lot of work with election officials and legislators and other folks. Um, that, is that something you've done ever in the past or is this a brand new thing for you? So this is all brand new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't even tell you the amount of fear I had the first time I testified in Olympia. I think you were there last January. I was, yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, just shaking in my boots. Um, and so, you know, really, I didn't have a lot to draw from except my motivation to see this change uh, and to be involved in the change. And so... The first time I met one-on-one -on -one with a, a legislator, <laughs> I, I was holding the paper in front of my face, you know, trying to read off my bullet points, you know, having the hardest time, you know, believing that I was talking to somebody um, important in government. But, you know, it's it's changed so fast in the last six months. Now I have no problem um, sitting down with elected officials, and I am looking forward to testifying <laughs> uh, on election security bills. And so... Um, really have come a long way in the last year. Yeah. yeah. Well, it just goes to show that even if you're afraid or intimidated by the process, you were still willing to put yourself out and move forward with it. And I think that's just a testament to the fact that 
um, individuals can be very instrumental in shaping policy in our in our uh, country and in our state. And I do use you as an example often about how one person can make a difference. So I'm really impressed with the work that you've done. So <clears throat> what are the next steps now? What, what are you going to be focusing on? What's your personal next steps? What are you doing? So uh, on the one hand, I'm doing a little bit of work nationally. Uh, I've been coordinating with other folks uh, involved in League of Women Voters around the country who are interested in election security. And we're working together to coordinate resources online uh, and to start to have uh, better uh, ways of communicating with one another. That way we're not reinventing the wheel across states. Exactly. So collaboration with other states. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And then and another part of what I've been doing is working to educate others uh, to have more folks on the ground. Uh, so back in July, I gave a presentation to Indivisible to talk a bit about Internet voting and email ballot return, um, since a lot of folks aren't even aware that this is going on. Uh, I also gave a presentation to an election security network, and this was a lot of folks who have cybersecurity backgrounds uh, who are interested in elections. And I really stress the need for them to get more involved in their states and to be involved in uh, legislation because with their expertise and their feedback, they could really make for positive change. I've also been talking to a few different state legislators in Washington and just kind of mulling over ideas for 2019. A uh, lot of positive uh, reception and feedback to that. Uh, but nothing really concrete yet. Mm -hmm. um, but we're we're kind of getting our our pens ready to get something um, out in time for the legislative session. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of work going on this fall, getting ready for 2019 for sure. So, um, in a perfect world, what would election security look like? So it seems like we keep having problems every four to eight years with the way our elections are going. And I think we need to stop uh, because we're throwing money at the problem haphazardly. And so what I think really needs to happen is we need consistent, not just sporadic, federal funding. And I think that federal funding needs to be tied into supporting evidence-based elections. So it's not just giving the state 20 million to spend on their elections. It's saying, no, you need to have these basic best practices involved in order to receive this money. And I think that would go a long way to help those states who have no paper um, to getting rid of their paperless voting machines and implementing that best practice. So um, getting rid of uh, electronic voting machines and going to all paper. Well, to, or trail, paper yeah, trail. Yeah, so, so there's a couple different terms here that kind of get specific. And so what you want is a either a voter-verified paper ballot or a voter-verified paper record. And so for some folks um, where it's easier for them to vote on a machine, that machine should then spit out a ballot that they can then verify, whether it's through an assistive device or whatever. Um, and that way it's not the machine itself that's tallying the vote they've seen the piece of paper that is then going to be tallied with a separate so machine. So you use the machine, but you have a paper trail mm -hmm. still. Exactly. So there's always a paper trail. Exactly, and that's what's going to be used in recounts or audits. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really need 
to stop the federal funding cycle that we've been going through and get something set in place and so that our election officials can actually change and be supported in that change. Um, the post-election audits shouldn't be expensive, but it does require a change in practice and it does require the paper. And so really for a lot of the states around the country, we need to start with the paper. Um, and as far as the cybersecurity goes, a lot of states are acting on what's been recommended, but some states aren't. So I'd really say for folks to learn, is your state partnering with Department of Homeland Security? Are they implementing the Albert sensors, which monitors um, suspicious traffic? Are they participating in the multi-state information sharing and the election infrastructure information sharing that's out there? A lot of these resources are there and the local election and state election officials need to take advantage of that, part of that uh, defend structure. Um, and so the fact that all that is optional is a little concerning to me uh, because our elections were made critical infrastructure. So in my mind, there shouldn't be anything optional about participating in these cybersecurity practices. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some federal uh, bills that have just been kind of sitting around, and I'd like to see real bipartisan action nationally on those bills um, to make sure we can get things moving um, rather than just stagnant and not mm -hmm. being you know brought forth in committee so. yeah well it sounds like states need more advocates like yourself working on this because it, it, it's obvious that this work does not get done unless it's people like yourself pushing for it and drawing attention to it and educating yourself about it and communicating with others to make that happen yeah, so we're, we're almost out of time but how how would you suggest people average citizens get involved um, with efforts for election security. What, what can the average person do? Well, just to reiterate, this is really important work. Elections are the backbone of our democracy. Uh, if we don't have fair and accurate elections, then our foundation is lost. And so I would say, um, you know, this is a great field of work to get involved in. Uh, so Talk to your election officials. Go and observe an audit. Find out more about how things work where you live. Um, definitely, I am more than happy uh, to talk to folks. So you can reach out to me directly, kmuller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, at lwvwa.org. Um, get involved in your local league chapter. Uh, the League of Women Voters has great relationships with their local election officials, um, and that can be a great way to start getting involved. Uh, I would say sign up for the Secure Our Vote newsletter and webinars. Uh, their website is secureourvote.us, and that's a great way to get the basic foundations of uh, how to act. Another really good resource if you're looking to educate yourself is verifiedvoting.org. They have all the different state uh, post-election audit laws in their database, and so that can be good to take that information to talk to your uh, state legislators or uh, whomever you want to start um, getting involved with. Thank you so much for being here today, Kirsten. It was so good having you and all the work you're doing on securing our elections. Um, we need more people like you out there doing that. 
Um, if you have questions or want to learn more about election security, as Kirsten mentioned, you can visit secureourvote.us. For more information about other democracy efforts in Washington State, please visit Fix Democracy First at fixdemocracyfirst.org. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future programs, please email me directly at cindy at fixdemocracyfirst.org. You can also listen to past programs archived on our new podcast page at democracy-speaks.pinecast.co. Thanks again for listening to Democracy Speaks. Join us again next week. And remember, democracy needs you just as much as you need democracy. Selah. Selah.